2: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joe Wine-Banks, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly atkins Store. Today, we'll be discussing the 11th Circuit's bench slap of Trump and the special master appointment in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. We'll also talk about the conviction of Oath Keepers leaders for seditious conspiracy. And we'll talk about domestic violent extremism and what Congress and the FBI can do about it. And this is our 100th full episode. So we have all of you to thank for that. It's so exciting. So to celebrate this amazing milestone, we'll be sharing some of the things you've shared with us about all the things you've enjoyed along the way. There were so many, we can't get to all of them, but we're so thankful you joined us on this journey and that we've been able to share our passion for our calling with all of you. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. I will say you can probably hear that I'm a little under the weather, but I'm recovering. So forgive the uh, scratchiness in my voice this week. Um, But yeah, we wanna get to some of the comments that you all have been sharing with us over the past several days about what you've all learned. Barbara, I wanna start with you. What, What have been some of the comments that you've really enjoyed?
1: Well, I have noticed a huge number of comments talking about Jill's remarkable life, which is absolutely <laughs> what I've most learned from 100 episodes of Sisters in Law. So, I, I liked one of those. So, so for example, we received a lot like this from Susan, who said, "We've learned about Jill's amazing life, Joyce's chickens." Barb's love of anything blue and pockets, so true. <laughs> and Kimberly's talent in decorating and sewing, even her wedding dress. And I would add singing. We can always try to get yeah. to sing in an episode. Not today, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if you want one thing, that simply has to be my understanding of the law. Week after week, you've collectively taught us to be patient, with the law. It has been hard for everyone, but now I understand how important it is for prosecutors to get it right. There is so much more that you've taught us, but I've learned to understand that law can be complicated and we must be patient with it. So, Susan, you most certainly have learned some wisdom, and we really appreciate that you have uh, shared that with us and that you, uh, you've been listening and enjoying our conversations as much as we enjoy having them.
0: How about you, Joyce? You know, I love that comment that Barb just read because it tells me that we're doing what we really set out to do. We wanted to hang out with each other and have some fun, and we wanted to help other people understand the work that we'd all had the privilege of doing. Um, I've got to say, these comments have made me really happy reading them. And here's one of my favorites. It comes from Lorraine. She says, I've learned how the law works and even how local, state, and federal government work from listening to you women. There is so much to think about. I often listen to a podcast more than once or even twice. My daughter, son-in-law, and two nephews are lawyers. Now I can engage with them on a more intelligent level. Um, so here's to the power we all have collectively, right? We ought to all understand and be able to talk about our government and the rule of law. Lorraine, I love that the podcast has helped you do just
3: that.
2: And Jill, our superstar, our superstar.
3: <laughs> I loved every single one of the comments and it really did make me feel rewarded for what we're doing. Um, and it was hard to pick just one or two or three or even 12, but I, I loved at Rundown By, who said, I found that your podcast helped keep me from getting overly anxious about all the chaos It put things into perspective and made it make sense. And that reflected what a lot of people said in their comments about helping them get through these really tough times. And to me, that's such a valuable use of what we do. So I was really pleased and thank you, Run Down By, for having said that.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I have to say, even though I'm on the podcast, I appreciate (laughs) all of you so much each week for helping things make sense to me. Um, And and so I I really understand that sentiment. And I, too, have really loved reading these comments, including one from at Brian underscore M2, uh, who wrote, I've learned legal terms. Stare decisis, anyone? Patience. (laughs) This is a theme. (laughs) Waiting for the House to drop on Trump. Uh, How folks in different parts of the country fix hot dogs. Detroit does it the right way. I'm just kidding, Jill. (laughs) And that Jill has a pin for everything. And she really does. This group of experts uh, I count on uh, for your accompaniment on Long Walks. You know, I listen to podcasts on Long Walks too, so I appreciate that too. Um, I just have to say, I am so grateful to have been on this ride so far on this uh, with all of you. Um, I've learned so much from you each week and um, I'm lucky that it doesn't just end at the podcast. I I think our friendships have grown stronger. So I, you know, text all of y'all individually (laughs) about things legal and otherwise. And um, it's really been wonderful to to build that bond with all of y'all. Any other comments that come to mind? Anybody can jump in.
1: I just want to point out that Kim just said all of y'all. So I think she's spending a lot of time. (laughs) Joyce is rubbing off on me. My (laughs) work here is
0: done. (laughs) (laughs) To say that. No,
1: I want to express the same as Kim, how much I appreciate each of you. I love our conversations. You know, we get to have them at the end of the week, late Friday afternoon, kind of after these crazy weeks have gone by. And I really look forward to hearing what you're going to say about things. You know, I've I've read the news. I've thought about what I think. And uh, it's really great. Plus, you know, we share some laughs. And uh, I always know that I can count on you folks to give me candid feedback the way only a sister can. You know, I have a, a, a sister, uh, a, a biological sister, who is the only person on earth who can say things like, you know, at my wedding, you're wearing that? <laughs> oh my wow. God. Or, you know, yeah, or what's with your hair? Um, but, you know, but it means I... She means it. And, uh, and I appreciate it. So I appreciate uh, your, your candor, your love. And it's been, it's been a great ride. Um, One more that I found, Kim, was from Elizabeth, who said, what have I learned in this, my 70th year on earth? And because I love listening to sisters-in-law, I have realized that I should have studied law. What I say to you, Elizabeth, is it's not too late. It is never too late. You can go to law school if you like, but even if you don't want to go through formal schooling, you can study law on your own. There are lots of great ways to do it, lots of great books to read, and you can listen to our podcast and we will do our best to educate you because learning about the law is something all of us can always do and do more of.
3: And let me just say, all of you have said it already, so there's no point in repeating it, but this is one of the best times of my week, every week. I look forward to... Um, I also dread because I always have to work so much harder to keep up with all of you. Mm-hmm. And I just do the research before we go on air. And I love getting your insights and your opinions and and your comfort and your your strength. It's been just a miraculous thing to get to know all of you through this medium and then to be together in our live shows, which I look forward to even more so that we're together. But, and here's one more from Jennifer that I really liked because I think this is really important. She said, I now attempt to read court decisions that are available publicly instead of just relying on the news. At the very least, I try to read the dissents. And I'm so glad that people are picking up on that we don't just read the newspaper. We click on the links and we read the indictment, we read the opinion so that we can talk to you about what it really means in our opinion. And everybody can do that. It's possible now with computers that you can know as much as anybody else. And it's really an important thing to know. Facts still matter. And the only way to get the facts is by reading the actual documents.
0: I love that so much. You know, if we were gonna have a tagline for the podcast, it could be hashtag sisters in law facts still matter. Um, That really does say it all. At the risk of being sappy and and, um, making myself tear up, I'm just going to say really, I I think it crept up on me. I was so excited about getting to do the podcast with all of y'all. I knew it was going to be a good experience. I think what has really surprised me is how sustaining it is and how many times I'll read something and think, "Ah, I need to send that to Barb or I need to see what Kim or Jill thinks about that. That happens to me all the time now. Um, and, And we're lucky to have that, right? Sisterhood is something to celebrate, so I'm glad we're taking advantage of the chance to do that today. Um, Another one of the comments that I thought was really great came from Emily. You know, I teach democratic institutions, so I spend a lot of time thinking about institutions and their fragility. And Emily and I were sort of on the same wavelength. She wrote, You ladies have taught me that democracy is unbelievably fragile. What I had taken for granted as, quote, laws turned out to be norms, traditions, or simply expectations based on trusting government to be run by ethical people. I guess the best example would be ignoring subpoenas from Congress. Who knew there is no way to enforce those legal requests? And I love how thoughtful this comment is. I think it gives us sort of um, the path forward for the next 100 episodes, where, for me, it feels a little bit like we turned a corner after the midterms, like we have a little bit more room to breathe in, but now we have to work really hard to preserve democracy. And and that's our path forward, is helping our listeners understand and think about how we protect and and
2: reinvigorate this fragile democracy that we've inherited. Yeah, that's really important. Um, And, you know, at Marie Bledsoe 3 pointed out something that I think about a lot. She writes, "My favorite and most enduring lesson from this podcast is I may not understand everything you say, but I always learn something new. I love when the sisters disagree, but it's always respectful and your shared values never change lessons for us all." And I have to say, I Uh, really appreciate when I come to uh, the podcast with a view on something and some of my sisters have differing views. I listen and it makes me think about, and we don't always agree in the end, but I listen to it. It makes me think about, uh, think through why I believe what I believe. And it challenges me in a way um, that I'm really grateful for. And it is always done with respect because the respect that we have for one another is really wonderful. It's been amazing so far. These 100, they've flown by. It's kind of crazy that we're already at 100 because yes, Jill is right. It takes a lot of work and preparation. Uh, before each show, we put a lot, we and our team, it's not just us, y'all. We have to say, we have a team behind us that also works very hard to make sure that we are prepared, that it sounds great and that we get it to you quickly. Uh, and we're grateful for all of them as well. Uh, but it it is a job. But it is also a pleasure, so thank you so much for uh, being with us so far and to the next one hundred and beyond.
1: I raise my cup
2: of tea in a toast.
1: you're
3: <laughs> here, here for a hundred and I raise my sisters in law mug. <laughs> oh, well done. I told you guys earlier
1: that this may look like a sisters in law t-shirt, but
0: in fact, I've had the logo tattooed on my chest. <laughs> That from the woman who won't talk about underwear. Miracles (laughs) still happen on hashtag sisters in law. Here's a comment that comes to us
1: from at Persephone1. I enjoy every second of Sisters in Law, but I have found the most enlightening, the insight into how DOJ works and the blow by blow of federal and SCOTUS cases. Thanks Persephone. Uh, We love talking about DOJ and we're glad you like learning about it.
0: Listener Julie wrote to us, discussing each week's show with my mother-in-law was an interesting way to communicate and bond during the pandemic. We continue to do so and we look forward to listening every Saturday. She recently wrote, "Thank God for sisters-in-law. Brilliant, timely, human, calming in demeanor and reminds me why I became a lawyer." Um, thanks Julie. I adored my mother-in-law too and, and reading your comment made me so happy.
3: All of you listening now know that Judge Cannon took a case brought by the former president that we all said she shouldn't have taken, and she used it to appoint Judge Deary as a special master, and to then tell him to slow down in reviewing the documents that had been taken from uh, the White House to Mar-a-Lago, and then removed by the FBI after a legally authorized search, pursuant to a search warrant, DOJ appealed, and we all told you they would win. And they did. The 11th Circuit smacked down Judge Cannon in no uncertain terms. They vacated her decision. Joyce, you wrote a really excellent analysis of the 11th Circuit's opinion. Tell us who was on the panel and what they said.
0: Yeah, so the court was, um, I thought, incredibly reassuring about the future of the rule of law in this country, They said, in short, that they weren't going to write special rules for former President Trump. They said that they were going to follow well-established case law in his case, just like they would for anybody else. What Trump always wanted in this litigation was something very unusual. He was seeking the ability to interfere in a criminal investigation before he was indicted, And the law is clear, you can't do that except in a very rare situation where you're able to show that the government has callously disregarded your constitutional rights. Not only did Trump fail to to show that, to prove that, he didn't even try. And that's because when you think about what was going on here, all that the government had done was to execute a judicially authorized lawful search warrant. In other words, they respected Trump's rights. There was no effort, nothing that even approached disregard of them. Hence, no justification for even filing this lawsuit. And that's what the three-judge panel at the 11th Circuit said. They said, we're not going to write a rule that would let anyone who is under criminal investigation Bring in the courts to supervise the Justice Department. You know, can you imagine? The system would become unworkable if that was the rule. And that's what Trump was really asking for. The court says that would violate separation of powers and it would just be a mess. And the court said we're also not going to create a special rule that's just for people named Donald Trump. He just doesn't get that as a former president. So the court said it would follow the law, which was what Trump did not want to hear. And it's really even a little bit sweeter coming from this panel of judges because two of the judges are Trump appointees. But it's the third judge who's really the most interesting to me, William Holcomb Pryor, the chief judge of the 11th Circuit. He is an arch conservative. He is a lifetime member of the Federalist Society. He is a former Alabama attorney general. And Judge Pryor was perennially on Trump's shortlist to be nominated to the Supreme Court. So this isn't some judge that Trump will be able to write off. I, I'm sure that he'll be dismissive and, and derogatory towards the members of this panel, but that's just not gonna work with, with Bill Pryor. And it's very sad that it needed to be said, but here we have somebody with straight up conservative bona fides telling Trump no and saying he's not above the law and doing it promptly. Um, All in all, this is a very satisfying pro-rule-of-law
3: opinion to read. You can say that again, and it is filled with some great language. And Kim, as our favorite writer, I thought it would be good to ask you to talk about some of your favorite lines from the opinion itself, which, of course, as has been noted, we hope all of our readers will actually read the opinion. But Give them some highlights.
2: Yeah, and I think we will put a link to the actual text of the opinion because the thing that I really like about this and the way the Judge Pryor approaches this is that sometimes you get opinions that are written and you know the judge is just waiting for them to be quoted in the media. This really isn't like that. Judge Pryor takes a really matter-of-fact, clear, point-by-point just dissemination of the arguments made by Trump's team that is rooted in law, but it's also very plain and easy to read and easy to understand. There's not a lot of legalese in here. So the journalist in me would actually read this opinion and say, OK, there, it's not like it's full of zingers. But the lawyer in me reads it and says, oh, this is clear for all the reasons that Joyce pointed out. Judge Pryor is the conservative's conservative. The other two judges were appointed by Trump. And I just don't know. Yes, Donald Trump can appeal this if he wants to. But to whom? He's already been shut down by the Supreme Court in trying to intervene in this. And he has probably the most conservative justices in the federal uh, appellate judiciary who just ruled on this case. And it was against him. So I don't know where. But the the point that I'm making about the way Judge Pryor wrote this so clearly is I, I really just picked out one quote in which after he sort of took apart each of the arguments and called them a sideshow, um, he really said at the end, the law is clear. We cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant, nor can we write a rule That allows only former presidents to do so. And at the heart of all of Donald Trump's arguments is that because he's a former president, he should be given all of this special consideration that, you know, these documents may be important to him. They may be personal. um, They may be released to the public. He doesn't want that. That's the case with anybody, whose information or, or property is seized by a lawfully executed search warrant. Of course, they're taking your stuff. <laughs> That's... That's how this works. Of course, this is stuff that you don't want them to take. Of course, this may be stuff that belongs to you. And in this case, it's a lot of stuff that didn't belong to Donald Trump. They're classified documents that belong to the federal government. So Judge Pryor was having none of it. Um, And so I think this is a really, this is a great opinion for people who aren't, Normally, reading uh, who who don't regularly read court opinions because it's easy to understand. We're talking about this podcast being a learning vehicle, and this is a great one. Absolutely. You know,
0: Kim, I'll just add to that. It's really interesting. Um, This is a per curiam opinion. That means none of the three panel judges signed it. It's issued by all of them, but it does read a little bit like a Bill Pryor opinion. And to your point that people who don't normally read opinions, don't have a legal background, should read this one— it's really clear. And something that I love is the very first paragraph tells you how the court rules. A lot of the time, you've got to get 20 pages into an opinion before it's clear what the court's decision is. Well, here you know it from the get-go, and then he or whoever wrote the opinion proceeds to explain it. So it's a great opinion for our listeners to read. If you only have time for a little bit just cut to the very last section. I think it's Roman numeral four around page uh, 19 and
2: read those last couple of pages for yourself. Yeah, that's really important. And thank you for that. Fact check, Joyce. It was a per curiam decision. I assume that Pryor wrote it. Well, um, I mean, anybody who's
0: ever read anything that he's written, (laughs) read it and was like, "Oh, Bill Pryor
3: wrote this opinion."
2: But we don't know that. I want to be. We are (laughs) about facts here, so I appreciate that fact. This is the
3: kind of inside information that our (laughs) listeners get. (laughs) Exactly. So it's it's also. I mean, I think while you're right, Kim, in terms of how it was written, I think when you read the whole thing, it's screaming that someone should file for Rule 11 sanctions for a frivolous lawsuit because there was like no basis for this lawsuit to have ever happened. But Barb, tell us what the decision means for the case against Donald Trump. And when do you expect a decision from Special Counsel Smith's grand jury on the Mar-a-Lago case?
1: Well, the the, uh, order will not be effectuated for a little bit of time because they're allowing Donald Trump an opportunity to appeal. He has the opportunity to ask the full court of the 11th Circuit, you know, this was a three-judge panel, to gather on banc, as they say, the whole court, and uh, sort of reconsider. And it it seems unlikely that will happen in light of this very strong decision. But then the next step would be to appeal to the Supreme Court. I imagine Donald Trump will do that. Um, They have decided many of these types of Privilege matters and other kinds of things pretty quickly. So I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will decide quickly. And then within, I hope, a few weeks, Finally, the Justice Department will be back where it should have been in August when it first executed the search warrant and moving forward on the case. Now, they have been investigating in between. They have been putting people in the grand jury and interviewing witnesses and those kinds of things. But really reading the documents is important, and they haven't been able to uh, to do that outside of the purview of the special master so far. And so one of the things they'll need to do is to have the intelligence community assess the um, sensitivity of these documents, which are the ones, if any, they want to use in criminal charges. Because once you use documents in criminal charges, there are some risks of exposure of the content of those documents. And of course, the whole point of this this case is to protect national security classified information, some of which is defined, classified information is defined as the release of which will cause harm to the national security. And if it's secret, it's grave harm. And if it's top secret, secret, it's exceptionally grave harm. And so um, they don't want to use these documents as exhibits in the trial if they might be disclosed in some way, so they have to go through those and assess which ones they can use. Joyce, I know you, you've you've used this phrase before: Goldilocks documents—the um, documents that are just right. They're neither too sensitive to risk even a law clerk seeing. You know something that is—I can't even imagine what that secret would be, but secrets about you know our nuclear stockpile or you know something, um, our uh, troop locations—the secret place where they take the president when there's a nuclear threat. You know whatever these things are. Um, nor do they want to use something that looks so vanilla on its face that it will be difficult for a jury to assess the seriousness of it. For example, sometimes a document is classified simply because the source is someone whose identity you want to protect, not that what they said was anything particularly remarkable. So what they'll want to do is find things that kind of fall somewhere in between and then run it by the intelligence community, you know, whoever generated it, NSA, CIA, uh, the FBI's uh, intelligence collection, um, DOD, wherever it came from, and say, you know, is okay we're going to get a protective order. We're going to do our best to keep this secret, but this is one that we want to use in trial. And I think they have to go through that work. So I know some people have been asking me, so does this mean that the indictment's coming next week? And I think the answer is no, because I think that work is going to take them at least several weeks. So I think uh, I can't imagine an indictment before the end of the year.
2: So can I just ask this then, if this was meant to be a delay tactic, was it successful even despite the fact? that we get this opinion and the very low likelihood of uh, if there is an appeal that Trump will be successful, it seems in a way that he was.
1: Absolutely. And I think delay is always his game. Um, I don't know that he'll ultimately win this game because I think DOJ, if it chooses to file charges, can do so probably in early 2023, which will probably give them enough time to complete the case. But You can bet that if charges are filed, he'll file every motion under the sun. If he's convicted, he will file an appeal. Um, And so he will keep pushing that until after 2025, you know, January 2025, we will have potentially a new president, potentially even a Republican president, potentially even a President Donald Trump, at which point he could— Pardon himself. So I think the longer he can delay it, uh, the, the more he can perhaps get himself to that point before he ever has to go to prison.
3: Okay, so I just have to say one, I do not think he can pardon himself legally under the Constitution. And secondly, one of the good things about there being a special counsel is that he will outlast the Department of mm-hmm. Justice should there be a change in administration. Yep. And therefore, even if, if there's been an indictment, but it hasn't gone to trial. It can still go to trial after the change of administration. So that won't, st- it, it won't ultimately mean that he wins. Uh, he may have won a skirmish, but he hasn't won the
2: war. Here's a comment from listener Jen. The most important thing I've learned from you ladies is that Jill Weinbanks has had the most interesting life imaginable. That's really true. Uh, Jen continues, also trust that the wheels of justice move slowly, but they do indeed move. Jen, as somebody who is impatient, I agree with that.
3: I love this comment from Caroline in Austin, Texas, especially the first part the most important information I learned on sisters-in-law was the meaning of substantive due process. The principle is at the heart of unenumerated rights and will be at issue for many years to come. And that certainly is true. But she continues saying, another fact I learned while watching the sisters live in Austin was that they are just as impressive in person. They are also warm and gracious to everyone in the audience and each had a great sense of humor. So I hope that's Going to hold true because as we go on the road with a live show, I hope all of you listening will come see us.
0: So in more good news for the rule of law this week, the Justice Department managed to convict every defendant in the Oath Keepers prosecution this first case on one or more of the charges against them. But it's complicated. I mean, Kim, this was a case with multiple defendants and multiple charges. The marquee defendant was Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, and the lead charge was Seditious Conspiracy. How did the jury sort it all out?
2: Yeah, it was complicated. In fact, I made from news reports, I made my own little version of a jury sheet that kind of shows who was convicted of what? Because it was very confusing. So Stuart Rhodes, who is the head of the Oath Keepers, was the big fish in this. And he certainly was caught. He was convicted of seditious conspiracy, as well as a number of other charges, including uh, obstructing the certification of the election, destroying evidence in the case, obstructing an official proceeding. He was convicted of that. Put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that in a moment. And... Um, as I said, destroying evidence in the case. Some others, including Kelly Meggs, who leads the Oath Keepers Florida operation. Um, was convicted uh, of, actually, Kelly Meggs was convicted of all the charges that he faced, including seditious, seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to stop the election, to interfere with members of Congress, obstructing an official proceeding and destroying evidence. And the three other uh, members of the Oath Keepers were also convicted on some charges, but acquitted of others. Now, I'm coming back to that conviction that Stuart Rhodes had for obstructing an official proceeding proceeding, Stuart Rhodes was also acquitted of conspiracy to to disrupt the election certification and also acquitted of planning to stop members of Congress from uh, discharging their duties, which I found interesting given the fact that he was convicted of obstructing Uh, The official proceeding and, of course, of seditious conspiracy. So the only thing, the only reason I flag that is I have questions as to whether the jury may have thought or given at least some weight to the one of the main arguments of the defendants, which was this was not a big plan to get together and go to Washington and stop this thing. We went to Washington for this rally. We were there. We went to the Capitol and, you know, things got out of hand. They just happened uh, spontaneously. So I wonder if that took hold with the jury at all. I know sometimes juries convict on some things and acquit on others and you never quite know. Um, But that's the only thing that I would keep an eye on as we talk about what the ramifications of these convictions are.
0: I think that's a really good take, Kim, because the, the thing that, you know, it's always different what we hear in the media and what the jury is told in the courtroom. And the key part of a conviction uh, for a conspiracy count is that the government has to prove that there's an agreement to do something. Um, in this case, there is a lot of focus on agreement in advance. So I think your take is a, a really smart one. As an appellate lawyer— I'm really happy to see some defendants be acquitted on some counts because it lets me argue on appeal that the jury didn't just rubber stamp the indictment, that they weighed the evidence individually for every defendant and every count. And I think that plays well on appeal. But, you know, there were some losses for the government here. Barb, do you think that's bad for DOJ? I mean, where do you think this all goes from here?
1: I think the outcome of this case is actually very good because everyone was convicted of a 20-year felony. So whether it was seditious conspiracy for two of the defendants or obstruction of an official proceeding for the other three, they're all facing a potential statutory maximum of 20 years. So that's a big deal. So I think overall, this case is good news. I do think that the Justice Department needs to think about what might have caused the jury to find three of the defendants not guilty of seditious conspiracy, because it does have some more of these cases coming up. And so uh, to the extent it can pinpoint maybe what how the evidence differed between uh, Meggs and Rhodes and the other three defendants, that can be Um, a learning opportunity for the Justice Department. But sometimes juries just do, you know, goofy things. Sometimes they just make compromises. Sometimes the evidence is so overwhelming against one or two defendants in a case that it pales the evidence against the others just sort of pale in comparison. And so they think, well, that was clearly guilt beyond a reasonable doubt as to those two defendants. And since there was less evidence for these other three, that must be something less than guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. So you never know. There's also, I think, a little bit of illogic in the the mix of the verdicts here. For example, Stuart Rhodes is found guilty of seditious conspiracy, guilty of Obstructing an official proceeding, but not guilty of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. So that means the jury thinks he did obstruct, but didn't agree to obstruct. You know, usually you can, you know, the agreement is kind of the first step toward actually doing it. So that strikes me as perhaps a little bit illogical. Sometimes they even compromise. You know, one one juror says, "Well, I think he's guilty of X, but not Y," and the other juror says, "Well, I think he's guilty of Y, but not Z." And then you know, somebody else comes along. Can we all agree that he's guilty of of Q? Uh, yeah, I, we can all agree to that and everybody agrees to that. So I think sometimes there's some compromise that uh, that we don't see. But I think that the DOJ um, is now positioned in a really strong place because they've got a couple more of these trials coming up. Another batch of Oath Keepers is going on trial for seditious conspiracy December 12th. And so I think with these convictions behind them, um, they are now in a superior position to negotiate guilty pleas if any of those defendants are interested in either pleading guilty um, and possibly also cooperating. And then right after that comes the Proud Boys seditious conspiracy case with Enrique Terrio. You know, to the extent he thought, maybe you can dodge uh, conviction because you weren't physically present at the Capitol. Um, Stuart Rhodes wasn't physically present inside the Capitol. He didn't go inside and he was convicted of seditious conspiracy. So I don't think that's going to be any um, uh, inhibitor toward a jury finding them guilty. So I think um, if I were a lawyer for any of these defendants facing trial in the coming weeks, I would be having a conversation with my client to say, look, um, we saw what happened in the Oath Keepers trial. It seems like a D.C. jury understands this charge and is willing to convict on this charge. There is some very significant criminal exposure here. Would you like me to go back to the Justice Department and explore a guilty plea and cooperation? And if so, what do you know? What do you have that I can offer?
0: You know, usually in this situation, there's sort of a fight to be first um, for that sort of best deal. And I wonder if that's going on. Obviously, this case has potential to have some pretty long legs and reach into other um, defendants. Jill, Kim, what do y'all think about what this case portends, not just for the future of the investigation, but for the health of our democracy?
3: I think in terms of democracy, it's a really good win for the Department of Justice I agree with everything Barb said, um, but I, of course, know, as all of us do, that each case depends on the precise facts in the case. And it's not just the facts against one defendant. It's the total package of all the evidence against all of the defendants, which, as Barb points out, if it's so strong against one, someone can get acquitted, not because they're innocent, not because there isn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but because well, they're just not as guilty as the other guilty people. So in terms of the cases that are pending, which as Barbara said, is there's uh, another Oath Keepers trial coming up, and then a Proud Boys trial coming up for seditious conspiracy. I think that if I were representing a, a defendant there, I would be saying, if you have something that you can give, this might be the time to do it. I think that government is in a stronger position. I think it is, it would behoove them to try to figure out what exactly went through the jurors' minds as to how they had some seemingly inconsistent verdicts. Uh, and was it just that the three were acquitted because they were lesser involved than the other two? Why was Rhodes only convicted of obstructing, but not of conspiring to obstruct. Once they understand that, they will know how better to approach the next trial. And oftentimes jurors will be willing to talk. And so there's ways that they can find out and structure the new case in a stronger way, but they're in a strong position anyway.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, uh, what Jill said. Um, I, I think sometimes we call verdicts mixed and losses um, as if that is something to fall back on. I, I read this and after seeing the headlines about mixed verdicts, and I thought, oh, no, this is really great. Um, I think there is that weird thing that we've all talked about, this idea that Stuart Rose was convicted of doing something but not conspiring to do the thing and We don't know exactly. It depends on how the cases against the other defendants are being set up Um, to to learn exactly what the impact of that might be. But I think that this is good. I think all of them were convicted of really, these are harsh crimes, as Barb said, uh, obstructing an official proceeding. Every single one of them was convicted of that. And I think that it's important, not just in this case, but in future cases, to show that there are teeth to these laws and people who try to stop the levers of democracy um, there will be consequences for it so I think that that's great
0: yeah, I think that's right. I, I'm struck, and I think sometimes we get stuck in the weeds of the cases, and it can be tough to back out and and get the same sort of view that we'll get maybe in four or five years looking at this historically. But you know, this is this is a Civil War era statute, right? Seditious conspiracy. It's meant from a time that the country broke out in in open civil war. It's a statute that DOJ has frankly had some trouble deploying in other cases. Too and soon, Joyce, too soon. I know, I'm sorry, <laughs> honey, but it's not your fault. We're talking about Barb's Hutari prosecution where a federal judge uh, dismissed uh, her case. Barb uh, was a the visionary. judge was wrong. This See, was an Eileen Cannon level judge. History wasn't ready for me yet. Correct. But history now is, is ready for you. And I think yes. that's the point. You know, this is a jury of the peers of these defendants who have said January 6th that was sedition. That was an insurrection against our government. And, and I think the country has to acknowledge that and come to grips with it before we can move on. That's been tough. So I'm glad to see that we're finally approaching that point.
1: We also got a comment from Mark in Bournemouth, England. And I'm so grateful to hear from you, Mark, because I actually have ancestors and still have family in Bournemouth, England. It's a beautiful place. I've had a chance to visit there. And thank you for listening from all the way over there. Um, and, And Mark says, the thing that I've taken away from the podcast is to try and put emotions aside and simply to have faith that the legal system will prevail in the end. It's helpful and reassuring to hear from you each week and I'm very much looking forward to the next 100 episodes. Thanks, Mark. I hope we'll all be here for another 100 episodes altogether.
0: Another comment came from listener Shaw, who wrote, What I've learned from the podcast is that I'm not a fool for holding out hope for American democracy. The meteoric popularity of hashtag sisters-in-law shows me that there's a groundswell of citizens who insist on accountable government and justice. Thank you. And thank you, Shaw, and all of our listeners who joined sisters-in-law in believing exactly what you wrote. This, I think, is who we are. Well,
1: I want to talk about domestic extremism. You know, we've been talking about sedition. Um, According to FBI Director Christopher Wray, the top domestic threat comes from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists who advocate for the superiority of the white race. In fact, he was here visiting at the Ford School for Public Policy today. I got to go hear him speak and he talked about this. Um, it It is this group that has been the source of the most lethal attacks in recent years. Um, and then this week we saw the Department of Homeland Security issue a bulletin that warned of a heightened risk to the LGBTQ community and Jewish communities in particular. Jill, it seems that the threat to Homeland Security has an, evolved from, you know, back when it was Al-Qaeda and then it was ISIS back in the day, now to domestic terrorism based on race, ethnicity and anti-government sentiments. Um When it was al Qaeda and when it was ISIS, the United States government was very aggressive in combating it. You know, we talked about the war on terrorism. Do you think that our government is currently taking this threat of domestic extremism seriously
3: enough? I think there was a history here that they did not take it seriously enough. If they had, January 6th would have been reported in ways to authorities that would have been prepared to stop the violence on January 6th. So there's pretty good proof that they didn't take it seriously, at least in the last administration. And the DHS bulletin that you referred to is trying to warn of a threat. But I think some of the things that they say in it make me feel like it isn't a strong enough effort on their part. Because they talk about kind of things that people can do to protect or that the department is doing. They say, we are continuing to share information. Well, what do they mean continuing to share information? They didn't share the information about January 6th that was or should have been in their uh, possession. And so I am a little bit um, frustrated by that and a little bit less than optimistic than I usually am about whether the government is taking it seriously enough. And I think uh, particularly as I look at, you know, what's happened to the LGBTQ plus community and the recent shootings, but also, you know, as someone who is very interested in what the ADL is doing to protect uh, minorities and, and uh, religious groups, I think there's a real threat here that needs much more serious attention. And in the bulletin, they say things like, well, we have paid money to harden the targets, or we're telling targets to be prepared and to have a plan. That's not enough. I just feel like we need to have much more done by the government.
1: Joyce, there is, of course, another side to this when it comes to domestic terrorism, right? It's more challenging to investigate domestic terrorism because of some of the history we've seen at the FBI uh, with overreach and abuse and, you know, First Amendment civil liberties concerns. Do those obstacles you think make it impossible to stop the threat or is there more we can be doing?
0: Um, So I'm going to acknowledge that I may be an outlier here, but I think what's going on and, um, you know, others may quibble is that this is um, a failure of will and a failure of leadership in this area. If the FBI from the very top told the field that this was a number one priority, focus on domestic terrorism, um, then that would be the priority, and the FBI would do it very well along with other agencies. But it has been difficult for federal law enforcement to focus on white domestic supremacist terror in the same way that they have on, say, international terror, Um, for some reasons that are obvious and others that just maybe have a little bit more of a tortured history here. But if nothing else, it was clear that a sea change was necessary at the FBI after the Trump administration and probably at some of the other agencies, the Secret Service as well. And that sea change just really hasn't come. And and so a problem that had already been a problem in previous years really became entrenched um, in the culture in the law enforcement agencies. That I think has made it very difficult to use the legal tools that are there, the laws and, and the investigative authority in the ways that are necessary to take this problem on. You know, Barb, you I, I've heard you comment on the fact that um, you'll hear folks at the FBI say, well, we couldn't go out and look at social media. And of course, that's not true. They do have that authority. They simply have made a, an internal decision um, not to use it. So, you know, law enforcement needs to embrace the fact that this is not about politics. It's not about their politics. It's about crime. And whether Chris Ray, the current head of the FBI, is up to that challenge or not, I think um, is something that people have begun to question. But it's something that's going to have to be pursued, whether it's under his leadership or, or whether there needs to be a change.
1: Yeah, it's a tricky question. You know, I teach this course on national security and civil liberties, where we explore the tensions. And the FBI has a really shameful history, where it was investigating, uh, you know, a, a Vietnam War protesters and Martin Luther King and civil rights leaders because they believed that they posed a threat, uh, you know, to domestic security um, or something along those lines. And so, the FBI put all these. Um, obstacles in place, internal policies. You know, they have that thing they call the DIOG, the Domestic Investigations Operations Guide, that says you can't investigate someone solely on the basis of First Amendment protected activity. And I think that's where they get very squeamish about looking at social media and online. But, you know, they do it for ISIS, even Americans who are expressing um, support for ISIS. And I think you can distinguish between that which is First Amendment protected. You know, I love isis. I you know I love whatever oath keepers, whatever is the the group. Um, but when they start talking about threats and violence, you know that is certainly something that the FBI can be looking for. So I think it's harder, but it's certainly not impossible. And I think, like you, Joyce, my instincts are to be maybe a little more aggressive in this space. Um, Kim, let me uh, continue talking about domestic extremism, but I want to discuss it in the context of the January 6th committee. You know, it's it's gathering to prepare its final report. Uh, The committee is no doubt going to be disbanded when the new Congress gets sworn in in January. And Liz Cheney has said she wants to focus solely on the conduct of Donald Trump. There's been some reports of some internal uh, disagreement about that. Um, Despite the fact that there were other teams as part of that January 6th committee staff that investigated other aspects like lapses in security to the building and this threat of domestic violent extremism. What's your view on the Cheney approach versus the other approach of discussing some of these other threats?
2: Yeah, so there was a Washington Post report and there has been some other reporting since then uh, about this tension that there are staffers on the committee who have been putting in time uh, looking at all of the things that the committee was charged with investigating. Whereas the leadership seems to want to really focus this final report primarily, if not entirely, uh, primarily on Donald Trump and holding him accountable. And according to this reporting, it's really uh, Liz Cheney that is running the show even more so than Benny Thompson, who is the chairman of this committee. She is the vice chair. And if that is true, that gives me pause. That gives me concern. I do think that making it very clear uh, what the culpability and the accountability of Donald Trump is. I I think that's really, really important. I don't take away from that. But I think this committee needs to do both. And I think they need to clearly show what Donald Trump's role was in January 6th and also clearly um, also identify their other charges, which include all of the factors that led to January 6th, which includes domestic extremism and the role that that served. We just talked about the Oath Keepers as an organization and the convictions that were there because of their part in this. This is not new. Domestic extremism has been the biggest terrorism threat to Americans for years and years and years and years. And I think if you talk to most Americans, they don't recognize that. During the Trump administration, there was an active effort within the DOJ to suppress that fact because they thought that that would be politically disadvantageous to Donald Trump. And that is uh, reprehensible. You had, you know, people like Bill Barr saying, oh, I'm never, I don't even know what you're talking about. At least here, Christopher Ray Wray, has been say, who was a Republican, uh, has been saying clearly from jump, that this is the number one uh, threat to Americans. Now, what has his agency done differently to address that? That's a good question. I do not know because that is not clear. Um, but I think that is something that this this uh, that the committee needs to address squarely. Also, law enforcement—the failure on law enforcement on that day that they were caught unprepared. Uh, Flat-footed, that should never happen. Certain, with any law enforcement organization, s- specifically Capitol Police, should not have been um, in the position that they were in. And that's really important to know. So I really hope that this committee gives a full-throated um, examination of that in this report as well, in addition to whatever they show about Donald Trump. I don't care if the report is a thousand pages long. I know there's a concern that they don't want another Mueller report that nobody reads. You know what? Give us bullet points. Make make it easy for us. Give us, you know, another video montage that includes that. Put it in whatever form you want, but don't dismiss this. And what I was concerned about is reports. Again, I didn't this is a report from the Washington Post that some of this work is just not being included at all. I hope that the attention that this has gotten is making them change their mind because this is all really, really important. I think to your point, Kim, that the reason that you have
3: executive summaries is so that you can include part one, the case against Donald Trump, part two, the case against the FBI, the Pentagon, whatever, or, you know, law enforcement there is. But also I want to make sure that they redefine the January 6th committee As not being the violence of January 6th, but the efforts to overturn the election, which includes, of course, the fake elector scheme, the state legislature pressure, the pressure on Vice President Pence. All of those things are really an important part to saving democracy and to future legislation, which is, of course, what they're they should be focusing on is what laws do we need so that we don't have a repeat of this or have any areas that have unclear legal restrictions. The Electoral College Count Act needs to be looked at. And how can we strengthen it so that no one can say, oh, well, it's legal within the Electoral Count Act to do this. No, it isn't. And so I just want to make sure that they include, I agree with you that I would like to see more included. It can be You know, 750 pages about Trump and maybe, you know, a few hundred pages on the others, but it has to include all of them.
2: And and one other one final point that I'll make and agreeing with Jill is the reason that it needs to. My fear is also that if this is focused primarily on Trump, it can be effectively dismissed as a political stunt. Right. Which is what Donald Trump has claimed this is the whole time, that this is just about him. It's just about Cheney trying to launch her political career. If it's thorough and backed up and involves all of the things we've talked about, makes it a lot harder to make that case.
1: I can see that this committee is having like the same kind of creative differences the Beatles had. Right. You've got <laughs> on
2: the one hand,
1: you know, you've you've got the. um uh the politicians who want to tell a compelling story for political reasons, perhaps, but also accountability reasons. And then you've got the wonks, you know, back who uh, are... um you know, they think every detail matters, and it does. And, you know, one wants to tell a compelling story. And I, I also think the point about, you know, this can't read like the Mueller report. Nobody read it. It's so dry. And I it says things it. like, you know, I we're really not saying he was guilty. Report. If he was, we'd say so. We're not exonerating. I we're read on it the twice, other hand, the day it was released. Oh, it's horrible. But um, but I do think no. you can do, as you said, Kim, I think your key phrase was both and. Um, I think they do have an obligation to have the the historical record of all yes. of this somewhere. Like, look at the 9-11 commission report, right? That's hundreds of pages. Uh, but it's really well written in a way that's very compelling. But I also think you can have some sort of executive summary, video summary, whatever it is that does make uh, a compelling case in a much more concise way. And maybe that part can focus on the role of Donald Trump and the fake electors and all of the things that were, were part of the plot to steal democracy. So um, what, what they need there is, you know, a good boss to come in and, um, and and make sure everybody gets to say their piece. And so maybe Benny Thompson needs to kind of uh, rest, wrestle back control of this committee here. Um, so is he from, Paul? From Liz Cheney.
0: And is Cheney yeah.
1: <laughs> John? I was thinking he was Ringo, but oh. I don't know.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, if you're listening to this, I'm I'm sorry, we've gone wild.
3: <laughs> but you know, I disassociate from Bar- these comments.
0: <laughs> Barb, your point is really a good one because it sort of made me flinch. I I read the Mueller report carefully. I know you did too, because we testified together in Congress about it. I think it points—it has really great explanations of crimes and their elements and how they work so good um, that I cut parts of it and make it available to my first-year law students and say, here's a really great explanation of the elements of this crime and how we should view it. But but why I I think I have to agree with you, despite my sort of preset bias, is— Look, these these decisions and, and these reports, they're not written necessarily for you and me, and they need to be written in a way where everybody can pick them up and read them and understand what's being said. So I think you're right. Kim's point about bullet points is a good one. Um, Let's get this information out in a form where people can read it and understand it and use it. And then most importantly, we can move forward as a democracy. So um, maybe it is up to the chairman to wrestle back control and make sure we end up with a living document here.
1: All you need is love.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I'm no Kim. Here's a comment from listener Cynthia. Women from different ethnic backgrounds, different generations and different interests can find common ground in the U.S. Constitution and the law. I love the way you all support one another. Uplifting women is a beautiful thing. Thank you. And hashtag go blue. I guess that's for Barb. I mean, I came from a go blue. Michigan <laughs> state it. household Thank and a Wayne you. state household. But okay. <laughs>
3: And another great comment comes from Brenda. I'm not a lawyer, but have written a, and produced two legal drama series in Canada. That sounds pretty interesting. What you've taught me is to be patient with the law. Justice takes time, but justice will prevail. Love your optimism and have taken a page from you. Women should rule the world. Thank you, Brenda
2: we have come to what really truly is our favorite part of the podcast, which is answering our listeners' questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com at or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds through the week. When we can, we answer a lot of our questions there. So our first question comes from David, who asks, are term limits on justices possible? What would it take for it to be enacted? Barb, do you have an answer?
1: Yeah, it would be a simple act of Congress. Congress could put term limits on justices. Of course, like all federal judges, they currently serve for life, uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, there has been a proposal to put an 18-year term on Supreme Court justices. Now, you know, there are some downsides to that. I think people like the idea of, Uh, a life term because it's supposed to remove political pressure. You never have to worry about, you know, your next job, uh, if this is going to be the one that you get to have for the rest of your life. But I think that there is a legitimate concern that once uh, justices lock up their spot on the court uh, at a young age, you know, some of the recent justices came on in their late 40s. They'll sit on the court for 40 years that maybe it's healthier in a democracy that, uh, you know, 18 years or so is enough. And then the new president, who whatever party they're on, um, gets to pick a replacement. And so um, all it would take, David, is an act of Congress.
2: Yeah, and I think it's important to note too that that proposal has really broad support throughout the ideological spectrum. Um, So it's a good idea. The problem with that is whatever president and whatever Congress is in power at the time doesn't want to do it, right? Because they don't want to give that power to the next opposing party, which is why our system is broken. So our next question comes from Richard, who asks, can the vice president break a committee tie? I think he means a congressional committee tie. Jill, do you have an answer for that? I
3: do, and unfortunately, the answer is no, but the voters of Georgia in this particular election in the runoff can do that because there is an equal number of uh, Democrats and Republicans on every committee in a 50-50 Senate. But if it's 51-49, then the 51 gets to have the majority of every committee. And therefore, you would be less likely to have a tie. So, the election, the runoff, uh, means that if Warnock wins, the Democrats are not going to have as many ties as there might be without his winning. So, he becomes more important than just being another Democratic senator.
2: Thanks, Jill. Uh, our last question this week comes from Michael. In Nevada, California, I hope I'm saying that right, Michael. What are the reasons a justice might recuse themselves? Can we expect this from any justices in the current era? Forgive me from chuckling, but uh, Joyce, do you have an answer to that question? It was like
0: a sad chuckle, right? You had to laugh right? so you wouldn't cry. I mean, for <laughs> so long, this was something that we took for granted. It was easy. Judges and justices are supposed to recuse from any case where they have an actual conflict of interest or where their participation in the matter could make people believe that there was something improper going on. The rule is intended to ensure that people have confidence in the Supreme Court as an institution and in its impartiality, because we trust it to decide our most difficult disputes. And so justices were meant to err on the side of caution, to make decisions. For instance, if your wife was involved in advocacy for a certain form of political action, you might avoid Clarence Thomas. <laughs> you might avoid sitting on any cases that involve that. Um, and so the, the principle is pretty easy to explain. Um, and i think that you know we all know it the question is whether the court will experience a return to normalcy Um, And I'll say for the second time in this episode of the podcast that it's largely a question of leadership and will. You know, it's not easy to be the chief justice and to force the other justices to do something. You don't technically have the, the authority to order them to do something. But a strong leader and a good leader will find a way to bring the justices back into balance on these really important ethical issues Otherwise, the court's the, the confidence of the public in the court and the court's ability to continue to act as a cohesive institution, um, I fear, is, is going to be really badly damaged.
2: Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joanne banks Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. We're so glad you've been with us for 100 full episodes, but the work goes on and there is so much more to cover. We hope you will keep joining us every week as we continue to explore the intersection of law, politics, and our future. You can send in your questions by mail to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or Tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. You can also go to politicon.com slash merch to buy our tees, the cozy hoodie as the temperatures are dropping. They're great. And other goodies. And please support this week's sponsors. HelloFresh. HelloFresh. Thrive Cosmetics, Cameron Hughes Wines, Stamps.com, and Honey Love. You can find their links in our show notes. Please support them as they really make this show happen. Keep up with us every week by following hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with our 101st full episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. You know, it's so
0: weird. The seminal memory of my high school years, going to Disneyland um, when I was in high school at summer debate camp and dancing to Fleetwood Mac covers all night long at all one right. of the this, places. You need to hear more about this.
1: <laughs> You're such a geek Joyce. I'm sorry. What de- <laughs> Summer debate
0: camp. I went to and summer debate it? camp because I debated in so, high school at the University of Southern California. It was a great debate camp. Mm-hmm. Um but we would go on little outings to Disneyland, as one did. Um, and it was Fun. just a great place to go out and dance with friends. And they used to, and you know, to I'm of that Mac. age where they played Fleetwood Mac. And that's just sort of like the lingering, you know, if I had like sort of a, I don't know, a cover photo for my high school years, that would be it. I love it. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow, Joyce. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Yannan, right? You the go cha- your own such way. such great songs. Mm-hmm. The Chain.
2: You there'll be no more cry for you,
0: the sun will be shining.